Welcome to the podcast, Alyssa. Thank you. Um, my name is Mary Gruss. I teach English, Wade McDonald, photography, and we are a part of our cubed rethink. Relearn. Repeat. I always get the order of them. How can you start with repeat? It doesn't even make sense. And he I still can't do get it. it right. He doesn't even know who we are. Alyssa, who are you? What do you do? Uh, I am Alyssa Martinka. I'm an English instructor at Ridgewater. I was just counting on my fingers when I was outside. This is my 14th year at Ridgewater. I was trying to figure that out. Which sounds crazy. I was on the I was on the Wilmer campus for 10 years as TPT. Is this your fourth year? This is my fourth year in Hutchinson, if we can call it that. I mean, because COVID. last year we were at home the whole year. And the year before we were at home right. half the year. You're assigned campus, yeah. Correct. Even though that doesn't make sense sometimes. Right, it doesn't make sense sometimes. It doesn't make sense at all. No. Don't you think that's going to like kind of I hope fizzle? so. I hope so because I think it's, I personally think it's really healthy for our faculty to understand the different dynamics of our students on each campus and understand how the personality of each campus, because I don't think they really know. I mean, I didn't, rem I had nostalgia, right? Like I remembered my Wilmer students from 17 years ago, but to come back now and see those students and, and work with the Wilmer students, I think it's super helpful to put into perspective how different they are from the Hutchinson students and how different the Hutch students are from, their needs are different. And, and not just students, I mean, the divisions that we have among faculty across the campuses and even within the same discipline. I mean, Mary, oh. you know what I'm talking oh, about. Totally. Yeah. Like our department has been that way before where Hutch kind of functions in its own world and Wilmer functions in its own world. And that's not healthy for the institution either. I, I think the more connections we can make, like with what you guys are doing with the podcast and all that, I think that's awesome. I think that's good. I think that's good for the college community. Well, I mean, it's the same way, though, that we think of our students. We want to recognize their individuality, but we want to still work together as, you know, a classroom or as a system and move them together, move them forward together, but recognize those differences on the different campuses or within each student, right? Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Alyssa, we asked you here primarily because um, you had a major shift in kind of your philosophy of education, philosophy of teaching, so to speak. Um, you and I kind of, we're not too far apart, like in terms of when we started teaching. We're only, I think I've been here for about 17 years full time. You've been here for 14 years. You came on like only two or three years wow. after I started. Wow. Yeah. Um. I'm only like a year or two ahead of you. I might be way older than you, but <laughs> experience wise. Right. But you and I have gone through a lot of um, sort of different ideas about education, about teaching English, about teaching our students and who they are and how we do this. Um, and you personally have talked about, you know, becoming less of an asshole. <laughs> wow. Well, there we go. Those would, I would say, I would say there were two major shifts. Um, I mean, one of them was like 10 years ago when we did all the reading curriculum and all the on-course curriculum. The, those were big for me. Um, and it wasn't just about the reading instruction. It was also about, I don't know, the way I, the only way I can explain it is, is taking the implicit and making it explicit, which means 
as a skilled reader, whatever that means, right, I have all these processes that I do in my head to figure out vocabulary, to figure out context, to, to aid in my comprehension, right? And when you become, you know, a skilled reader of a particular type of text, like you do those things almost automatically and you don't think about what they are. And after going through all the graduate work in reading, you know, I realized through that instruction, I have to make those clear to students. I have to show students what's going on in my brain when I encounter this text and the different strategies that I use um, so they can start to do them as well. And that was probably my first like dipping my toe into the water of vulnerability. And uh, Weren't you a vulnerable teacher before that? Uh, letting go of <laughs> my control and perfectionism. I know, Wade, you talked about that on one of the early podcasts, too, like how you had your lecture notes for the class period of like what you were going to say like every five minutes. Like 10 point single spaced. Yeah. Um, I'm sure if I went back to my my H drive files, you know, from fall of 2008, (laughs) I would find those documents saved there. Yep. You should go back and look at those. You should just to see. But I don't, to be fair though, I don't know if anybody starts the other way. I don't know if anybody starts being vulnerable, um, understanding their content and reacting in the moment when they're teaching and, and being able to talk to things in context as things come up and tying things together and they never go and then, the, and then they never take time and then go back to reading notes off something like we all, there's a journey and we all have a a lot of us follow that same path, right? Where we're restricted, it's it's set, it's preset, it's pre-canned. I'm really nervous. I understand my stuff. Please don't ask me a question. And then, and then here we are, you know, 14 years later, or seven for me, or 74 for Mary. Is that right? Or no, yeah, 112. Uh, <laughs> you know, where we are more lenient and we just we trust ourselves more. Really, that's I mean, that's one thing that Mike Kutsky said to me is that you need to trust trust yourself more. Uh, but to take that leap was hard for me. Uh, but I'm glad I that I, I did it. I just tripped and, and fell into the classroom one day and then it was all over. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, like, I was just vulnerable I'm not going to go back to my notes now. <laughs> right. I clearly lost it all <laughs> like, already. Not that saying that teaching with notes is bad. An outline no. is great. But to read, to be scripted um, is hard for the students to take it all in. And Were you a perfectionist as a student, Alyssa? I think you know the answer to that question. <laughs> That's why our, our, our listeners don't know for sure. <laughs> for they sure, do now. I was a perfectionist as a student. Like, my gosh, a B plus was like the world was going to end, you know? I had to get everything in line. and um, So grades were important. Yes. And like having my plan and... Um, I don't, Mary, I don't even know if you and I have talked about this. Did you know what I originally wanted to do when I went to college? Weren't you political science? Weren't you government? And English. Yeah. Weren't you going to go into politics or yeah. were you going to law? Law school. Yeah. Law school was my my plan. Yeah. And it was super funny because we had like a first year experience course at my college and my, my advisor, the instructor for that course really confronted me. He's like, you have like two of the most liberal arts majors here. We were having this conversation about the meaning of liberal arts and, you know, if you're going to college for that or if you're going to college to get a job. And I'm like, well, no, I'm going to college to get a job. He's like, you have two very liberal arts majors. (laughs) Like, I don't understand how you're in this camp. You know, he made us like get on different sides of the room or whatever. And and I said, well, I'm going to go to law school. That's my plan. Isn't it obvious? (laughs) That's my plan. 
Um, but gosh, my soft, I think it was the end of my sophomore. No, I think it was the end of my freshman year. My advisor, who wasn't the best advisor in the world, um, she did something really great, which she she said, um, you should be a tutor. You should go to apply to the writing center and you should be a tutor, which from her was a big compliment because her standards were incredibly high. Like she wanted everything that we wrote to be publishable material for freshmen and sophomores in college. Anyway, she was not necessarily well-liked. She was brilliant, but not really well-liked. But she recommended that I be a tutor, which was the best thing that she ever did for me in in the years that she was my advisor because I, I went through the training. It was a pretty intense program. The director of the writing center did all this training with us, you know, where you learn, like, you don't take your pen and correct the student's paper. You sit next to the student. You make them take the pen. If they push it to you, you push it back, right? Like all this stuff about making sure they still know that it's their work and they have this sense of ownership and control over the piece. She was just amazing. Um, and then I, I loved the job. Like I would work with students just randomly who would drop in, but we also had sections of composition one where the students were, I don't know, maybe their ACT scores were like a touch on the low side, right? And not developmental, but sort of. And so they had to work with the same tutor every week. So I was assigned probably five of those students to work with. And that was so rewarding to see, because I would meet with them every week for the whole semester. So I don't think our semesters were 16 weeks. I think they were maybe 14. Yeah, I think ours, because we had like a long J term. Right. We had a J term with classes and then the spring. So they definitely weren't 16 weeks. But anyway, so I met with them for the whole semester. I got to see their skills grow. And I got to see their confidence grow, which was huge. And I was like, oh, God, I really like this. I really like this. Uh-oh, law schools. And so then I totally changed my plan. I was like, nope, nope. I want to teach writing. I want to work with students like this. This is what I want to do. Um, Did you know that's where you wanted to be, too? Was like at a college level? Or were you thinking, oh, education, K-12, that's fine, too? I, I really didn't. You know, because by that point, I would have been... A junior or a senior? It would have been probably partway through my sophomore year. And I would have been at Augustana the fall semester, but I was in London the second semester. So by the time I came back, I was a junior. So to add a secondary ed major at that point would have like totally reset the clock. And it, and it wasn't really what I was interested in. Like uh, I worked with a lot of students too who were international students and non-native speakers of English. So I had this wide variety of experience and um, that's really the level that I was interested in. So it, it didn't break my heart that I didn't really have time in my mind because I couldn't go back and like start over, right? Like that right, wouldn't have been, right. no, that that wasn't wasn't been an, an option. It doesn't my work brain. with personality, That right. wasn't a plan at no, all. No, so instead I had to keep what I was doing and, and follow this new path. But I kept my government major because I... I don't know. I really loved it. I had some great, great professors and the courses were challenging and it was fun. So, But I also think that's the thinker part of you, right? Is to break it. How does it all, because there's connectivity between all of these things. I mean, especially when you think about literature, right? Like the one thing I always try to teach students is there's so much connectivity to the world around us. Literature is a comment on everything that's going on in the author's life at that moment, right? Whether it's in Nigeria or it's in the United States or they're in the United States moving back. I mean, we're reading Americana by Adichie right now, so that's in my head. Um, 
<clears throat> but it's it's a comment on politics. It's a it's a comment on current events. It's a comment on art. It's a comment on the so- society as a whole and where we're at. It's all of these things. It, it plays a role in everything. You know, it, it's a commentary, and that's connected because you also read a lot and you you like teaching literature but there's also then all of the backstory of what's going on and and that foundation in politics and government i think really feeds that and logic yeah and i mean every time i teach literature which i'm teaching british literature right now i mean we make history and politics a huge part of the conversation you know it, and it's always funny um that british writers class is really like 20 20th 21st century so the students come in and they think we're reading like Beowulf and Shakespeare and stuff that they won't understand at all right like they really do have this preconceived notion of what the class is going to be and I'm like no look at the description like this is modern and postmodern literature like we're going to be talking about World War One and World War Two and the fall of the British Empire and then how and all the colonies and how they gained independence and the writers that came out of that and then they're the ways in which they argued against, you know, how they were treated as the colonized. So, of course, descriptions matter. Is that what you're saying? That's, what? That's, clearly, ours that's... should be ours should clearly be sexier than what it is. Um, because they come in thinking they're going to read wow. Beowulf, right? Not about Beowulf, right? That's the, the description. Not about Beowulf. Yeah. And then you know what? A lot of them do wake up because they get really interested in that. And there's always some people in the class that like history, too. So then they're like, oh, you know, and then they start to see those connections like you're talking about. Um, so, yeah, I mean, my my joy of that other part of my college experience definitely comes through. And when I tell my students sometimes if we're reading something and I, I wander a little deep into that political science territory, they're like, oh, OK, we get that. We see how her brain is working. Right. So but kind of to circle back a little bit. Right. You came with a very concrete plan. You went and you got your master's degree at St. Thomas. um, And then you just decided to teach it to your college. Like, how did this happen? Uh, Well, Ridgewater had postings that they had TPT needs and um, like temporary part time. Yes. And uh, my husband, well, he wasn't my husband then, but his family's from the area. And so it just kind of made sense. And I, you know, thought I'd apply and see what happened. I didn't really know that I'd still be here 14 years later. <laughs> um, you know, the, I, those things can change, but yeah, it's been good. So what kind of a teacher were you at the outset and how has that shifted now? So to connect to what we were saying before, I definitely was controlled and also I thought the persona that I needed to present in the front of the room, super professional. And keep in mind, too, I was, what, 25? Yeah. I mean, so I looked like I could have been a student. I, I remember going to the bookstore on the Wilmer campus and having Judy Myring think that I was a student. Right. The reading work, the on-course work, again, that made me think I have to be – I have to do things in real time in front of my students. Instead of prepping – Here's this reading. Here are the strategies you should use. Here's how you can break down this word. Instead of prepping all that ahead of time, that actually wasn't useful for them because they'd watch me breeze through it because I'm sure I had too much coffee and I talked too fast. And I made it look easy, right? And 
then they were overwhelmed and they didn't even know where to start. I, I think I still do this. Like you are, you're, <laughs> you, right. You practice and you refine and you get it to a point to where I can do what used to take me two hours to cover something. I can do it now in 30 minutes and then I hand it over to them. That's kind of scary, right? Cause I I've aced it and, and I still show the problems that I run into, but at this point I kind of know what problems I might run into. And then Sometimes I get emails back. You did the thing in 30 minutes. I've been doing this for six hours. And I'm like, you, what? Yeah, I probably either should break that into smaller sections if I really want them. That's that's interesting because I'm too efficient. Mm-hmm. And part of it is our experience. But also I think this is going to sound crazy compared to what I said about me 14 years ago. But I think you can over prep. Yeah. I mean, we know what we're doing, right? Like you said, like trust yourself. So years, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I would not have taken a student's paper cold and read it aloud in front of the class because that's a frequent thing that we do, right? They have drafts and maybe it's just a part. Maybe we just read the summary paragraph or just the introduction paragraph or whatever it is. Um, And we're working on revision, right? And so they've brought their drafts. I asked for volunteers. I never force them like you, you're going to give me your paper. Um, And after you do it it a few times, they're ready to volunteer, right? Because they realize the feedback they're going to get is so great. And I kind of also am trying to train them on peer review. I'm guessing you do the same thing because you want them to see the type of feedback that yes. you're supposed to give them. Yes. But I'm making myself think aloud in front of them. And they see how long it takes me. I read something. Oh, that doesn't – what does that mean, right? Okay, let's read that again. And I, I never would have done that because I would have been worried there were er- there were errors I didn't see or there would have been problems with focus that I didn't see or the organiz- – I would have missed something. Right, I would have wanted the draft ahead of time so I could read it and take my notes, and then tell them, okay, here's the problem with the thesis. Here's how I would fix it. That here's the problem with the first sentence. Here's how I would fix it. Um, and now I don't do that because I want them to see me encounter that. And sometimes they see things I don't see, which is also great because it it validates their ability to contribute to the conversation. And I think the one thing it also does is is when you are not over prepared and you come into it and you're like, we're going to look at a draft. And so one of the things I always do is I ask, you know, so what are we looking for in a draft? Like, what are the big things we should be looking for? Because when I over-prepare, I will go all the way down to the nitty gritty and I'll be like, this is a comma splice and this needs to be fixed and this is how we fix it, right? But that's not a part of peer review on a draft. That's editing, you know? So when when you're doing it cold, I will catch myself in that moment because that's an easy fix, right? So I'll be like, but this is a... Just for the record, this is a comma splice. We'll talk about that later, but it doesn't have anything to do with what we're doing right now. But I need to say it because my brain needs me to say it, you know, and then I move on to the other thing. But it forces us to take that step back and they see us rethink something in front of them, which is fabulous. After teaching for two or three years, I found that I didn't like to have the moments in front of the students where they saw me think. That sounds really weird, but there's... I'm laughing because I 100% relate to what you're saying. And it's almost scary now thinking back. Like, I I didn't want them to see me pause to think about something because... You're the professional. You should just know. You should have all the answers. Correct. Yeah. And that goes all the way back to Lindsay Ampey, one of our first examples where she was like, I get to the end of my thing and I'm like, any questions? No, thank you. Goodbye. Like, I'm going to use Lindsay in every single podcast because we do that, right? We set these expectations, I think, for 
teachers that we're almost like actors, right? And that we have these different takes and that our final, um, our final take has to be perfect and there can't be any errors in it. And it's what, it's a projection of us that it has to be perfect. So you have to come in front of the classroom camera ready. Yeah. Right. Like I do every day. You have to know all your lines. <laughs> it's a performance. Right. And you're rehearsing it and you're delivering it. Teaching is not a performance. Correct. I'm not saying that that's the way that it should be. I'm saying that that's the way I used to think of it when I was, when I would over-prepare and wouldn't trust myself. How did you learn to trust yourself? Was there a moment? I remember specifically sitting with you at an on-course training. So for those who aren't familiar, on-course is a college success kind of course workshop that we have at the college. And we went to two different sets of training, one in Baltimore for three days. And then we went to Palo Alto, California for a few days. And I remember being in Palo Alto with you. I remember being in on course one with you. And it was very, again, still pretty logical. Like this is going to make me crazy. Like students are going to like, I just remember me being like the empathetic, like, oh, let's talk about this. But we got to Palo Alto and it was when we were talking about learning styles. And you and I had already worked together on things. And we found out that you were a thinker and that I'm a storyteller. Like I'm, I'm, I want to know all the connections. And she's like, I want to read the book, listen to the lecture, watch the Ted talk. And it's not that I don't like those things, but we just come at like giving the information differently. And you realized that the way you love to learn is not the way that everyone else loves to learn. And I remember us having like a conversation about how we could divvy up work differently because now we knew each other's gifts. And I remember us having a conversation about this means our students are different than us too. Like, and I remember that moment with you where we were both like, ooh. <laughs> I do. I feel like it was a moment where we saw ourselves more clearly, but we also saw each other more clearly. Because like you said, after that, I feel like any project we work on together like we get what each other's strengths are. And we don't even really have to be like, okay, will you do this? It's just kind of like, boom, like we right. take the time. I will all of a sudden start getting like texts with like pieces from the Atlantic and then pieces from the CRCC and then pieces from this. And I'm like, these are things I'm supposed to read. Alyssa has said, <laughs> these are my assignments. Right. <laughs> so is this a strengths finder? What is this specifically? It, it, it's within OnCourse, but it's called, is it something? Learning preferences. Learning preferences, yeah. Inventory, I yep. Think? So you learn like how you come at things. So there are people who are doers. They want to. They create the list. Yeah. I am. I struggle the most with the first bite. Once I'm in it, then I can make the list. But I really struggle with what's the first step. I remember um, when you were president of the MSCF, and you said uh, we're having a a meeting at eleven o'clock on this day, and I emailed you. You don't remember this, and I, I said. And I said, can you send me the, the email invite? And you said, you replied and you said, you can make your own email invite <laughs> and you can put it on your own calendar. And I was like, okay, how about all the other 190 <laughs> people that you just emailed? I've like, gotten are, better. Are you going to send anybody an 
invite so it goes on their calendar or we're all responsible for now putting this it was like a it was like a slog to get me to do it but i think i did i think you did and then i think you probably invited the wrong wade or you used my personal email and i had to remove all of them (laughs) and i was like oh my gosh so so i'm not very good at like the organizational sort of stuff that's no judgment because i'm really i'm I'm not i (laughs) didn't feel any judgment at all okay it's judgment but i'm not i'm not any better (laughs) but i think the other piece of it is so there's there's the thinkers right they they really like to sit and kind of pull apart things not necessarily in a gregarious manner right they want to they want to kind of dive deep into the information and there's the um there's the feelers which is what i am and i want to make you and and this other idea makes sense to everybody and i'm going to explain it in 18 different ways and tell you stories to make it make sense right and then there's the oh the innovators mm-hmm. The innovators are the big Let's ideas. Not do it that way. Yeah. Let's put it this way. So a feeler should never sit by an innovator. Oh, yeah. Because it's like a raccoon with shiny tinfoil. Like it's like, let me collect all the things. Yes. What are you saying over there in the corner? Oh, look at strobe lights. They like- will drive a doer nuts because they will yes. never get anything done. They don't, they don't, <laughs> it's not that they don't have initiative. They just are constantly seeing the next opportunity or possibility. Can you lean one way, but have influences of other yes, ones yes, also? So I would, I, I am a feeler first and I am a thinker second. I used to be a feeler first and an innovator second, but I, you can shift with time. It's not like dead set in you. Yeah. Um, I think you shift a little bit as you age possibly, but I'm a feeler first thinker second. Doer is at the very bottom of my list. So is this something that we can rip out of on course yeah. and have students do for themselves? Because I think that the, the benefit of this is not just for the instructor, but also for students to better understand how they can get the information and they can. Right. And that's the point of it in the curriculum is to help them see how they learn and to also think about how their instructor learns. And then it gives them a whole tool, toolbox of strategies. So if I'm a feeler, but my instructor is clearly a thinker, what do I need to do to help the material connect to me? This goes back to what Bryce was saying when we had Bryce on the podcast where he was saying, as a student, I need to find a way to make the material connect to me. Like, how do I, if I don't like this instructor and the way that they teach, how am I going to learn that material? Because you're not always going to get an instructor that's going to say, there are all the, there are these four learning styles and I have to think about oh, how totally. I address each of them. Right. I've never talked about that once in any of my classes ever. And I think I need to change that. You don't necessarily have to talk about it. You just need I think to. Students should kind of self-discover this though, so oh, that they understand where I'm coming from. It could be a week one activity where you don't want to dig into the content too heavy. Just yep. Yet. Good thing we're recording this. Otherwise I'd have to take notes. <laughs> well, and I'll tell you what, when we sat in that meeting and then we looked at, and um, one of the psychology instructors was with us as well, Angie Hadelstadt, and she's a doer, like a hardcore doer. And it was so nice for me to just be like, Angie, do you want to make a plan? Yeah. But it was also interesting because we, we had to talk about big picture issues before we could make a plan. And she was putting the cart before the horse over and over and over. And I was like, you can't do that yet. You can't do that yet. You still got to be at 30,000 feet the middle at some of it, point. Yeah. She got up and left to watch a Ted talk. <laughs> well, and 
<laughs> Sounds about right. If you dig in, like you learn, like there's benefits and drawbacks to each one, right? Because you can go to a fault. Right. So oh, I, can, absolutely. I can start to dig so deep into the research that I get off on some other track that really isn't relevant anymore. Where then I would need the doer to be like, come back over here. Yep. <laughs> like, I need you to focus. Yeah. 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 It's really an interesting, I mean, when you think about those dynamics, especially when you're doing group work, it makes a huge difference because you can say, it isn't that they're not paying attention. It's that they're thinking about something. Like when I'm in a group with someone who is a thinker, sometimes you often go quiet. Mm -hmm. And I know now to look at you and go, she's thinking about something. She's doing something. And I will either leave you because you need more time or I will say what's going on. You know, and I know to ask those questions because I know where she goes in terms of her 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 preference. I mean, not really related, but kind of related is people that like doodle when they're taking notes and they're drawing pictures um, that used to be, you know, from the outside, not knowing anything about how how we think or how we process information. They're screwing off. Right. They're not paying attention. But. That's not necessarily the case. A lot of times they're still thinking and they're processing the information and that's just an outlet for them while they are processing what is being, what video's on or what. Yeah, I've had students tell me that. I mean, Mm -hmm. especially if they have, you know, an attention sort of a challenge, like they'll say, that's how I can listen and focus. I've got to be moving in some way to listen to you. Right. Right. So not necessarily a learning style, but um, a a, a trait that um, can, can help students learn and that we have to understand and kind of embrace everybody's brain is different is that yeah what yeah right and it's all human we're all human wow she nailed it we don't because we do come back to that idea of i am the professional at the front of the room it's really scary to number one be vulnerable right and number two go okay you don't learn the way i am okay well, how can i help you like, how can I, how can I do this? Do I have to shift everything I'm doing? And it doesn't mean you have to shift everything you're doing. You just have to sometimes tweak it a little bit or think a little bit differently or ask what they need. How can I help you better understand? I often think of it as like, okay, I have all these tools in my back pocket. And I'm sure some students get sick of me using that expression. But it's like, I have these different tools in my back pocket. I'm going to pull out a different one on different days, maybe two on one day. And then at least over the course of a week, hopefully I've touched on something that's mm-hmm. going to help each student learn. Because I'm not going to do it all every day. It's just not no. practical, right? No. You know, I've spent a lot of time with my Comp 1 students um, rethinking about how that curriculum was structured. Like the last two years, you and I have talked about that a lot, right? It used to be like, okay, here's our writing text, whatever that is. Here's our textbook. We're going to read and study that. And then at some point later in the semester, we're going to have a novel or a nonfiction text that we read and write about. And that might be the, just the last four or five weeks of the term, right? We're going to blast through that, and then you're going to write a paper on that. Right. But I need you to remember everything we talked about in week two and still apply it in week 13 of that paper you're writing. And I mean, sort of with experience, I guess, but sort of because of small teaching, because I have listened to that book multiple times. So if anyone is listening and doesn't know, we did a book club on small teaching by James Lang, um, but Alyssa read it first and told me to read it. And then I said, we should do a book club on this, Wade. And yeah. Wade said, yes, we should. Absolutely. And then I said, Thank by you, the way, Alyssa. it was all Alyssa. <laughs> <laughs> 
mean, he talks about this idea of interleaving, which when I first read that section, I was like, okay, this is really intimidating. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know. Like some of his other stuff, it's like, okay, yeah, I can have them do a quiz that's not punitive, but to test their learning, right? It doesn't have points. It's no high stakes. I can do that. I can have them talk about the muddiest point in class. I understand I the application. Them. It's a very simple one-step kind of process. Right. You know that I just realized that we've been interleaving. You didn't know that? <laughs> like, I literally just had a moment where I was like, wait, what we do now is interleaving. <laughs> So I was really intimidated by that section, though, because I was like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do it right. But I know what he's talking about is a good thing. Right. Yeah. And so was it two semesters? How long ago? Was it three semesters ago? No. I want to say it was last semester. It was spring. It was spring of last year, and I was on sabbatical. A year ago. And I told you that I'd started doing it. Yes. And then you did it again in the fall, and I tried it in the fall, and I was like, this is brilliant. So what was the solution? <laughs> He's like, on pins yeah. and needles, what did you do? <laughs> well, we we take the textbook and whatever the other text is, whether it's nonfiction or fiction or it doesn't matter, whatever you want to read that semester with your students. And we read, you know, two chapters in the textbook. Stuff on um, finding the author's, you know, purpose or understand, being able to write a summary. Right. Looking right, for the argument. Right. Looking for. How do you find an argument? And then we. Play the with conversation those. in the text. Right. Thinking of the text as that a they say and the I say. So, like when you think about a thesis statement, where's the tension? What's the author's point of view, and what are they addressing that that is the either the opposing point of view or the outside yeah. idea? Sure. Yeah, because they didn't just decide to write this article in a vacuum. Like they're responding to something else. Like yeah. they're joining a conversation about something. Yeah. So they read a couple chapters on that, and then they read a chapter or an introduction from the from the novel or the nonfiction text. And we talk about that text, but then we connect. So then maybe the journal they write that week, which intentionally is not an essay. Low stakes, right? Thinking on the page. I don't want you to worry about MLA or any of that stuff yet. Right. How many words? Is, how many of them ask you how many words? Oh, all the time. Is this like 300 oh, yeah. words? What yeah. is this? And I'm like, you need to write enough to, to, to share your ideas. Yeah. Show me your thinking. Yep. That's what I say. So then we say, okay, so you read the introduction to this novel or nonfiction text that we're reading. Where's the conversation there? You know, who is the author responding to? So then we're asking them to apply immediately what we talked about on Tuesday to what they read on Thursday. Not wait 11 weeks to write about it. Yep. And in a low stakes way. So they're writing every week, but only like a page. And the novel really, or the novel or the nonfiction text, right? I'm, they're reading a memoir for my class. Um, really? There's a story there that pulls them in, right? So they're not only doing this other work, but the story is really compelling. And then later they start reading the academic essays. Mm -hmm. But they've been practicing these. So like right now we're doing like the the art of like quoting, right? Mm -hmm. Quotation sandwiches. Yeah. And so last week I had them look at a passage. Show me a passage from the first part of the book that really stood out to you and explain what the importance of it was to you, right? And it was a hot mess express, purposefully. So this week I was like, so when you're doing a quotation, you want to have a quotation sandwich. You want to introduce and give me context. You want to tell me what this quote is, set up the quote, then give me the meat, the quote, right? And then follow it with your voice and your conversation. All of a sudden you see light bulbs going off because they're like, I did that all wrong last week. And I'm like, nope, you didn't do it wrong. You just didn't know about the sandwich yet. And so now, like, they're making connections between this book and this book over here. You brought up something that I wasn't really thinking about intentionally, which is that text, whether it's a, 
a novel or a nonfiction one is much more accessible than the academic essays we have them read later. Yes. Which before I often did the reverse. I don't oh, know sure. why. Yep. Because the nonfiction essays were shorter. In my head, I think it was because they were shorter. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. I don't know why we did it that way. We did it that way. And um, But this text is very accessible because they can – they can relate to the character in some ways. They can see the character's story. And you're reading Cisneros' House on Mango Street. Right, right now. But yep. And my I class could apply reads... to a different... I mean, right. there's so many things you could choose. Again, as long as it's accessible and you can talk about entering a conversation in some way. Right. And I'm amazed at how many of them write, like, two-page journals. The journals have become crazy. With no, like, not breaking a sweat, but they start learning to put their thoughts on the page. Engaging in the conversation. Right. Because I tell them we all have different brains. And so you need to tell me what you're thinking about this quote, because I'm not going to think the same thing that you are. Um, but then I think when we get to those more challenging academic essays later, they've had that experience. They've built up their confidence. They know the strategy of the sandwich, like you said. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but they've also tackled another text. And so then they have to try to apply that to something that's just a touch more challenging. Right. And I find, I mean, it's been really interesting. So they, the the book they read in my class is Educated First. And so once we get through it, you know, the one of the last questions, you know, the, the, la the paper that they write is a series of prompts and the prompts are all coming out of the text. Sure. And one of them is like, you know, who was Tara's educators and why? What does it mean to be educated? And then they have to go find that evidence in the book and then explain it. But we also talk about the fact, you know, you have to realize that you have to write this in terms of what if I haven't read educated? So you have to give me enough content. You have to give me enough oh, sure, context. Yeah. So I get where you're coming from in that situation or event or scenario. And then you have to explain its purpose. And once they can do that, then I'm like, you can do that everywhere. Right. Academic, essay, you know. An, a pop, piece of popular writing or a, a nonfiction. This is the kind of writing we do. And we used to work through it where it was like, write a narrative, write this, write this, write this, mm -hmm. and all the modes of mm -hmm. writing, right? Yep, yep. I kind of forgot about that. Right. So, so practical in terms of how we learned writing, but so impractical in how they use writing in the real world. I mean, those are all aspects of writing like definition they narrative. do it they're parts of when is that how you learned composition but is that how you should teach it though like i'm gonna tell you a secret i didn't take composition one in college <laughs> Shh, i don't want to know that you probably got to skip it <laughs> but i often find that ironic like the class that i teach all the time i didn't well, and I think that's part of it, right? Like I never understood why I was good at writing until I was in grad school and I had to really pull it apart, right? Like I was just able to do this thing. The analysis. The analysis part of it, right? Sometimes my writing sucked. Like there's no doubt my writing was like, what are you trying to say? But but I got how to pull the parts and pieces and, and, and see the different layers and see the symbols and why are they here and what's going on. And it was when I got into grad school where I really started thinking about, well, wait, what, how, how do you put all this stuff together? Because had I have taught at a K through 12, I never would have taken those classes to teach me how to teach the writing. They don't do that. And that's really hard because teaching writing is hard. 
again, you're trying to make what's become implicit to you explicit to your students. Right. And you have to think about what do I do? I learned it a long time ago. Yeah. And it became embedded, right? But it became natural. And now you have to unravel to it and you have to go back. Exactly. And I think that's why one of the first things I talk about with students all the time is like, how many of you play a sport or an instrument, right? And they're like, me, I play basketball or whatever. And I'm like, so were you like LeBron the day you walked onto the court? And they're like, no. And I'm like, yeah, you sucked, right? You got better with practice. But not every practice was a game-winning shot. Yeah. And we have to stop assigning stuff. Mm -hmm. Like it's a game-winning shot in the state tournament. We have to help you cultivate your abilities and your skills. And I think that's why like the journal kind of approach that we're taking where we don't write any essays until the second half of the semester. They've had a chance to practice all the stuff we want them to do. They still get intimidated because now oh, they have to put it all together. Right. But they've practiced they've practiced it all. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't even really know that they've practiced it. They're reading this other textbooks. This you don't tell them? Well, I do, but I so say, many. I'm just telling them. Right. Well, I'm like, well, I say, I make the connection, right? But then they read that they say, I say. And so many of them are like, why are we reading this book? And I'm like, do you not see that we're, I'm assigning it with, and I'm saying, go to the Westover book. And they're like, oh. And then the next week they're like, why are we reading this book? And I'm like, oh my God. Well, in small teaching, there was a part about having them reflect and teach to an audience. And I don't know why this comes to mind, but that really gives you purpose on what you're doing and understanding of what you're doing if you had to teach it to an audience. My example is my students shoot products and they're like, why am I shooting this water bottle? Right. And it's hard for them to make the real life connection. It's a 99 cent water bottle. Who cares? No. Now take a picture, set it up spend an hour shooting that water bottle and now make a pitch to target as to why they should use your picture of the water bottle. Why is your water water bottle, water bottle (laughs) photo better than anything else? Why is it going to sell more water? What angle did you take? How did you make your approach unique? Yes. How did you think about your audience? Why is it? Yeah, exactly. Why is it important it out of context of just this classroom? Um, We have reached our time limit. We have. Um, and unfortunately, we haven't even like scratched the surface with Alyssa. Take two next year? Yeah, for sure. Can, can I explain the asshole thing? Yes, you can. So someone said to me and you, mm-hmm. I think, uh, something to the effect of stop being an asshole. And this was at the beginning of COVID. And at first I was I was like, I was defensive, right? I was like, are you kidding me? Naturally. I'm not an asshole. Do I look like an asshole? And then that statement just kind of played itself over and over in my head for like about a week. And I started thinking about my my policies, right? Like attendance, late work, those kinds of things. And I was like, oh, shit. I am kind of an asshole. <laughs> but it went back to like the expectations of, again, the performance. Like what? A professor should be and what those mm-hmm. policies should be and mm-hmm. if other people knew what was happening in my classroom my policies better be strict and fall in line with theirs right and I cared too much about what those other people thought and those other people were not my students yep and so I threw I literally threw all that stuff out the window in spring of 2020 and I haven't brought 
any of it back. And some of my students are still kind of taken aback. I'm like, yeah, there's a due date on the assignment folder, but it's not going to lock you out. And if you're going to turn it in on Monday because you had a really stressful weekend and you had a sick kid or you worked 20 hours, I don't care. You don't even have to email me about it. Now, if it's like several days late, then you should talk to me and we should figure out what's going on. Have you found them emailing though now? More? Um, So they email instead to tell me why and to maybe ask me a question for help. They don't spend a lot of time justifying whatever happened because they don't feel like they need to. So we don't waste any time on that conversation. We really dig into, okay, what question do you need me to answer? Yep. How can I help you get this done? What do you need from me? Right. From that perspective of I'm your instructor and I'm trying to guide you along this learning that we're going to do. And I love it. I mean, it goes back to like what I loved about tutoring, right? I mean, why was I fighting what I enjoyed for so long? Because I thought these other people made the right rules. Well, that and I think that then there's that pressure on you, right? Like I have to, like now I have to decide, well, is this a worthy excuse or is this a worthy excuse? And then you're ranking their excuses against each other. And just It's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. Total waste of time. I didn't come into this because I wanted to police students reasons and rank their yeah Yeah. (laughs) this is such a common theme that we have come across no i don't think we've invited and had anybody on the podcast that says that they started off um too lenient and got and and now they're better off being super rigid and super strict i don't think that anybody but we've almost everybody has said the same thing that they are better off not becoming more autonomy well yeah And trusting them, too. Trusting students. Yep. Number one rule, trust students. And you know what? If someone does lie to me, it's on them. I don't care. Yeah. Like, who cares? It's not my It's not my problem. I'd rather give someone grace that didn't deserve it than not give someone grace who did. Well, if they lie to me about why they didn't get it done, but they still do the task a week later and they learn exactly what they're supposed to do, then I'm, that's, I'm there to help them learn. Right. Like I said, who cares? Yeah. Who cares? All right, Alyssa, we are out of time. We thank you for coming on to our but show. But we're that having was awesome. you back because there's way more to talk about. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Alyssa Martinka. <laughs>